This is Chasing Encounters, a podcast about stories, languages, cultures, and identities. We highlight diversity and intersectionality in contemporary society through respectful and thought-provoking conversations. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to a new season and new chapter of our Chasing Encounters podcast here at OIC, the University of Toronto. The podcast about languages, cultures, and identities. And speaking about identities, today we have the pleasure of having Dr. Jonathan Rosa from Stanford University. Welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Excellent. No, I'm so glad to have you here because you know a person like yourself is 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 it's a little bit difficult to have a like a like a person in person chat other than the regular Twitter and slash Instagram kind of thing so I am I'm very glad and also it's, a, it's sort of like a, you don't know this but I'm telling you it's like a dream come true to have you on the podcast a while ago I had an interview in which the person asked me who do you want to have in the podcast and I say either Nelson Flores or Jonathan Rosa would be my dream come true and I, I think the day just came well maybe Nelson's the dream and I'm the nightmare or I don't know vice versa so I'll try to live up to that expectation <laughs> right no it's fine so to get it started you know this this podcast is about language and identities and cultures and because a lot of people know you you know from twitter and maybe mainly on your work when they read but i want to get not necessarily personal but whatever you want to share about yourself your family where you a little bit of your background and i know you have a connection with canada so let us a little know a, bit, a little bit about that Sure. I mean, it is interesting to be here in Toronto, which is my mother's birthplace. So I think a lot of people sort of assume based on the kind of work that I do, that my identity is defined exclusively in relation to Latinidad. Uh, and in you know many ways, I, I completely understand that perception of things. I, uh, my mother is, is uh, Irish from uh, Toronto and her family came actually to Toronto from Newfoundland and before that Ireland and my father's family is from Puerto Rico and uh, and they uh, migrated to New York City and then uh, eventually to Western New York where um, I grew up um, so it's interesting about being here in Toronto is to make sense of the ways that in fact my father as a born citizen of the United States was always framed as more of an immigrant than my mother who was not a born citizen of the United States and never became a citizen of the United States. And in fact, my father's racialized position as a, a man of color always sort of framed him as foreign in a particular way uh, that my mother didn't face as a white woman. And so, you know, there's a, a way that that kind of migration history and the ways that race plays into perceptions of domesticity and foreignness has always been central to my experience from a very young age. And then the linguistic components of that are, for me, you know, um, the ways that multiple varieties of the English and Spanish languages were always a part of my upbringing and stereotypes about the ways that those varieties are positioned as more and less ideal or correct and this sort of thing. So I've been obsessed with language and race for a very long time, and a lot of this is sort of written into me, it feels as though. Uh, so I've tried to write my way out of it in some sense. And it's hard to explain to people that my investment in this work, on the one hand, is about the communities where I'm conducting my research. On another level, I'm trying to write my way 
way into the world to sort of say, these are the ideas that I needed in order to develop, in order to understand the histories that course through me, that I've inherited, that explain my experience in many ways as I understand it. So a lot of the work that I've been doing, it helps me to sort of reconcile a lot of these issues, never fully reconcile, but to grapple with them in ways that I find to be productive. So uh, sorry for the long-winded response, but you can't ask me about who I am without getting to that. Yeah, so I'm a Canadian Puerto Rican, and uh, I am a dual citizen of, of Canada and the U.S., so that's not something uh, everybody knows. But yeah, what's, what's interesting, so my parents have both passed away. My mother, uh, when she passed away, she was undocumented in the U.S., so she didn't have legal status at the time. Um, and again, one of the people sort of assumed that my investment in analyzing and critiquing, interrogating assumptions about illegality comes from my Latinidad. But in fact, in some ways, it comes from the way uh, my insights surrounding my mother's unmarked status as sort of someone who was viewed as uh, an acceptable person in the United States by way of her whiteness. So her, my mother, as someone who's undocumented or who could have been framed as illegal uh, from stereotypical sort of stigmatizing notions about status, she didn't have status, was never viewed in that way. And so, again, um, a lot of these sorts of uh, deeply personal experiences, I think, um, shape my interest in these broader kinds of political questions about language, identity, history, colonialism, this kind of thing. Excellent. That's a good way to start a conversation about your work. Uh, and a couple of uh, questions that are more uh, my curiosity about your, uh, like you as a person rather than you as a scholar is one thing that caught my attention is that uh, obviously you studied in Chicago and I myself uh, live in Chicago for 10 years. I actually lived in Quaker Park for, 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 a, for a bunch of my time over there. I work for the Chicago public schools as well as a Spanish teacher. So in a sense, I relate to some of the things that you said. So um, as a curiosity, what is your favorite spot in Chicago? <laughs> You can't ask me that. Hold on, hold on. I thought we were coming here for me to have a formal research yeah, conversation. And I have to tell you my family biography first, and, that, and then we get to Chicago after that. You're really messing me up. So uh, let me say this. Chicago, I'm a born-again Chicagoan. Uh, I think Chicago's magic. Yes, I think it is yeah. one of the most special places yeah, for me intellectually, politically, personally. It is just a unique environment. It oh. captured my imagination. And I was just saying, you know, I, I tweeted something the other day about the ways that when I was a graduate student and I felt as though I was under attack at the University of Chicago, it was the city of Chicago that sustained me, and in particular the Puerto Rican community in Humboldt Park. So I'll never forget, for example, when I moved to Chicago in 2003, I had just graduated from college as an undergraduate student, and I started my PhD about three months later at the University of Chicago. And my mother actually had sort of um, heard about the Puerto Rican community in Chicago, and I didn't know anything about it. So she right. said, you know, I heard that there are these big flags there, so yes, you should check yes. them out. And, you know, as someone who grew up in western New York, Uh, the, the politics surrounding Puerto Rican identity and my uh, upbringing and my experience involved a tremendous amount of shame and a sense that Puerto Ricanness was something that I had to apologize for, right. uh, that I needed to make people feel comfortable about in order to introduce myself to them, to sort of say, I'm Puerto Rican, but don't worry. 
um, based on assumptions about a whole range of, of sorts of uh, issues and, and stereotypes. So I internalized a great deal of that shame and you know my I very carefully managed my Puerto Ricanness and my Puerto Rican identity. So when I arrived in Chicago, you have to imagine what it was like for me to drive under these gigantic steel flags for the very first time, which are the largest monuments to any flag in the world. And I'll never forget the wind being taken out of me because I felt like, wait a second, this is something beautiful. Yes. This is a space that people have claimed where they've revalorized and redefined this identity that for so many people is a site of shame, is a site of pain and trauma, and they've transformed it into something gorgeous and magnificent and, and beautiful to be celebrated. And so I even sort of am emotional talking about it. I'll just never forget the first time that I arrived in Humboldt Park and I encountered those flags. I welled up with tears and I just said, wow, there's more to this story about diasporic Puerto Ricanness than I ever knew based on my uh, upbringing in Western New York. That's uh, one piece of, of Chicago, though, because I was working in schools throughout the northwest side of the city while I was in Humble Park and um, in a range of sorts of Belmont Cragen and in Logan Square. I was also living on the south side of the city, my two HPs, so it was Hyde Park and Humble Park. Um, and Hyde Park was a bubble with the University of Chicago. Barack Obama was my state representative at the time, and so Dreams of My Father, his uh, book was sold at the Walgreens down the block from where I lived, that's where I bought it. So I loved Hyde Park as well, you know, predominantly, so uh, sort of stereotypically racially mixed community, but as part of the South Side, a larger predominantly African-American community. Um, and then I, based on the schools in which I was working, I started uh, to collaborate with one school and one student in particular, who was a Puerto Rican young man who was uh, teaching himself Hindi uh, <laughs> because he was obsessed with Bollywood. Yeah. And uh, in my work with him, I found him a Hindi tutor who was working in the library at the University of Chicago. And he said in order for us to do our tutoring, we needed to meet on Devon Avenue, far up north um, in the city. And so I, in my first year of doctoral studies, I was learning Hindi and taking my grad theory seminars. And I was in the community running after school programs. And so uh, I loved Devon Avenue. I love Humboldt Park. I love Hyde Park. Wicker Park is complicated, I but I find it to be compelling as well. And the lake is gorgeous. I mean, so I could sing the praises of so many different neighborhoods in Chicago. Now, of course, it's a very fraught space, too, a, a space that's defined by profound inequities and profound disparities and experiences of suffering in so many ways, but also beautiful experiences of resilience and of transformation and struggle. So, uh, so much, so much about Chicago resonates with me. I imagine, I imagine. I have the same sentiment because, you know, for you was the Puerto Rican community. For me as a Colombian background, you know, the people, the Mexican people in the South from La Villita, you know, Little Village, those were the ones who actually adopted me and helped me out when I struggled when I lived in Chicago. So I, in a sense, I relate to your feeling and emotional feeling of sort of having home somewhere else so that that was kind of like really cool I should I should say I mean I can I, I would be uh, remiss and and people would be furious with me if I didn't say the Mexican community was very central to my experience as well you know so I was uh, you know building really sort of um, wonderful relationships um, 
uh, learning about parts of the city, like Gage Park and, and a range of other uh, neighborhoods on the south side of the city. So, And it was the Mexican-Puerto Rican interaction in yes. Chicago that struck me as so compelling and so unique and different from what I encountered elsewhere. So, um, yeah, my Mexican people, my, my Mexican Chicagoans would say, you didn't mention us, so I'm sorry. You, <laughs> that's I'm glad what, you I'm no, glad that's what I. Me. That's what I actually brought it up because I know it is not only one thing. It's just like a mix of the Mexican community and the Puerto Rican community that there's a, you can feel the support and you mentioned it today in the presentation how we all all of them have it no and then come together in support in solidarity to each other which is one of the things that i really like when i live in chicago but anyways i need to move on to the next topic because uh, obviously um we want to talk about your work and your research and the things that you have done but i wanted to do it in a different way so what i have here on my notes is a it's, it's a bunch of words or phrases that you have said or you have pointed out at some point in your research book, tweets, etc. So I'll say the word, the phrase, and then you can elaborate around or say, or maybe say nothing, or whatever you want to say about the, the phrase or the, 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 the thing. So I'm going to start with the first one. The first one is the co-naturalization of language. The co-naturalization of language and race? Yes. So that's the that phrase is very important to me. Yes. So part of what I'm deeply interested in is how the category that is language, which is what is language as a thing in the world, particularly as a named category mm -hmm. or named languages, um, I, I'm interested in tracking the ways that the emergence of those kinds of what we might think of as glottonyms or, or right. named languages emerges alongside uh, named races or racial categories. So how does the project, the globalization of European modernity of the European modern project and colonial project yes. produce these kinds of categories. And uh, I think there are some scholars who have uh, paid careful attention to this. So in the book Voices of Modernity, Bauman and Briggs, mm. of course, are mm. attending to this. McConey and Penny Cook are yes. attending to this and inventing and reconstituting language. Um, Sylvia Winter is attending mm. to these dynamics and thinking about the coloniality of being and the ways that mm. the globalization of that project really stipulated so many categories, scientific and social categories in the world. So when I say the co-naturalization of language and race, what I'm talking about is how is it that these things that seem straightforward, right. that seem self-evident, what are the histories that allowed them to be recognized or perceived as such? Um, and so I should also show some of my cards sort of, of um, as part of a scholarly genealogy. So um, one of my mentors, Michael Silverstein, edited a volume that's titled Natural Histories of Discourse. And and natural is intended to function in multiple ways in that title. And so right. I was in a central part of my training as a linguistic anthropologist involved looking at processes of naturalization. So how these sorts of histories are made to seem uh, as though they always were and as though uh, th they were, uh, again, self-evident and as though the world were supposed to be this way. Right, the next couple of words, uh, I want to pick your brains on this couple of words, which sometimes is confusing for people, and sometimes people don't necessarily understand them, but I want to know what you, what's your take on the word decolonizing or deco decolonization and anti-colonialization? How do you see these two things? Is, are these two things different or are the same? So, decolonization anti or anti-coloniality? 
Sure. So lots of conversations about what decolonial thought is and what anti-colonial thought is. I mean, I this is similar to my my thinking around, you know, different debates about language pertaining to race. And people say, okay, are you anti-racist or are you, you know, what are the what's the particular way that you identify in relation to these concepts? Look, I think in a scholarly sense, we could trace genealogies of literature that have developed certain concepts. And it's within that scholarly realm that those concepts are deployed, I think, or that those debates have the most resonance around, Mm -hmm. oh, do you identify in this way or this Mm -hmm. way? I worry about the ways that we sort of create these false dichotomies and and, uh, the, the ways that those kinds of conversations are to me really pretty far removed from struggles on the ground where people are using these kinds of terms in a range of ways, decolonial and anti-colonial, often interchangeably. And, you know, I don't understand how productive it is, or I'm not sure how productive it is to sort of say, oh, no, you mean anti-colonial, not decolonial, or vice versa. But we could say, okay, which of these projects is about sort of uh, accommodating an existing world or or redistributing rights and resources within an existing world versus really fundamentally transforming, unsettling, calling into question the terms of, of being within this world. And I think a lot of those de- debates about the meaningfulness of those, those terms and right. concepts, and we might distinguish between a term or a word and a concept, um, but a lot of the debates about this are really focused on what's a, you know, which of these approaches are reformist and right. which of them are transformative. Um, so um, I think there are folks who have worried that the concept of decolonization has functioned as sort of a, a catch phrase or a catch term that really doesn't have a lot of content or is not used in, subst- in a substantive sense. And so Eve Tuck and Kay Wing Yang and others have called into question the metaphorical invocations of decolonization. Now, I'm, I'm sensitive to that critique, and I, I think it's an important one. On the other hand, I mean, I think that decolonization can operate um, as a powerful metaphor right. for making sense of symbolic experiences of um, making of understanding one's identities. And, you know, when you think from the Caribbean, where you have sovereign, you have sort of normatively mm-hmm. sovereign territories that have allegedly been sure. decolonized, decolonization metaphorically is, is meaningful in those spaces to sort of say, wait, how is it that we continue to be colonized? Now, when you think from settler colonial societies, I can understand why you would want to push back and say, this isn't a metaphor. We need to think about the ways that uh, debates about land and labor and resources are ongoing and and rematriation, redress, reparation are a pressing concern um, in in very materially sort of concrete ways. All right. I have another set of words or phrases. What is this idea of white speaking, white listening subject? What is this? Is this a person? (laughs) The white listening, white speaking subject. So I have, I, I have been working. So I should say, uh, when Nelson Flores and I were conceptualizing racio-linguistic ideologies, we talked about we uh, we talked about the uh, Toni Morrison's notion of the white gaze, mm-hmm. and uh, and we wanted to broaden that to sort of say it's not just a, a mode of vision, but a, a mode of uh, a mode of hearing. Uh, hence the white listening subject. And what Morrison is talking about is sort of the the structural, the overarching kind of structural relations 
of surveillance and uh, uh, that organize everyday life for particular populations that shape the ways that particular populations, racialized populations, are recruited to comport themselves, um, to, to configure themselves um, in response to that kind of uh, mode of surveillance. So we were interested in interrogating that not just as a mode of sight or a vision, but also of, of hearing, and uh, you know, in relation to language. So a white listening subject is not an individual, it's a structural, it's a historically constituted structural position, which is to say that a white listening subject can be an institution, a school, this kind of thing, can have, um, can function as a white listening subject, it can be an assessment or a test, okay. it can be a technology, Siri, this kind of thing, is a white listening subject, uh, potentially. So a white listening subject isn't just an individual. Now, an individual can, could be, could be but a, a person of color could function as a white listening yeah, subject yeah, yeah. insofar as that person of color is structurally located in a particular way. Mm -hmm. So we'd want to, this is why when we say, Barack Obama was the first president of color, absolutely, and yeah. he still enacted white supremacy yeah. because the structural meaningfulness of that position of the U.S. presidency is still anchored in whiteness. Yeah, so you can be a person of color furthering white supremacy. So, you know, we've broadened that concept um, beyond just listening to sort of say a white perceiving subject, okay. to say that this is not just about listening, this is about um, all of the yeah. senses are involved in this, mm -hmm. a sense of smell, of taste, of yeah. touch. All, everything yeah. is susceptible to hegemonic whiteness um, right. or, or could be understood in relation to hegemonic whiteness. And I mean, part of why we were so interested in this notion of a white listening subject and a, a white perceiving subject is that so much of our research has been focused on documenting the practices, the communicative practices of racialized subjects, but we wanted to redirect the right. our mode of uh, uh, interrogation, the focus of our interrogation to say, wait a second, we can't understand what's going on here until we make sense of the ideologies through which those populations' language practices are uh, constructed and distorted. So we can't understand those practices simply on their own terms. We have to understand the modes uh, of perception through right. which they're apprehended. Right. right. Speaking about uh, racial linguistic ideologies, um, uh, this is going to be the last question before the last question. It's, it's um, related to, you know, I, I've done a lot of work in Latin America or I have connections with, with many scholars and researchers in Latin America, Mexico, Colombia, Chile, you name it. And there is this concern that I have seen, and some others have seen it, in which most of the time we, the people in the South, and I'm saying the South because it could be the global South as well, we take um, the theories that are coming from the North, they are stemming from the North, in this case racial linguistic ideologies are coming from the work that you and Nelson have been doing for a while, and then now they're taking it, taking it up in Latin America as if it were their own. So, and then the conversations are, yes, the theory that you guys are, are, are sort of like uh, coming up is stemming from your work in the United States, but not necessarily reflects what happens in Cuba or Peru or Bolivia or Ecuador. So I wonder if you have any comments on, on this idea that people in the global South have been taking these, these, these theories and then sort of like adopting them. And I'm not saying that it is bad, it's just I'm saying I believe we in the South, we also have our own theories, you know, with, you know, Quijano and Silvia Rivera, Cusicanqui, you know, other scholars in Latin America, but then yet other people keep saying that, that no, this, this is the theory that we need to adopt here in the South. I don't know if you have any comments about that. 
Yeah, it's actually interesting in relation to the discussion that we just had about when I mentioned Barack Obama was the first president of color in the United States and yet still furthered white supremacy because you can be a person of color and inhabit a structural position in complex right. ways. I have a job at Stanford University and Nelson has a job at the University of Pennsylvania. These are two very elite institutions and so Nelson and I become structurally positioned in complex ways where our ideas have a particular status that is could be afforded to them based on our, our uh, institutional location. And so we'd want to be really careful about uh, the ways that uh, those institutions uh, and their brands and the power uh, with which they're endowed and associated could sometime, in some ways um, shape the way, shape how our, uh, our ideas and concepts get taken up and potentially imposed upon yes. uh, contexts outside of the United States. And so, you know, I've said this um, on multiple occasions, you know, my goal is not for the world, people all over the world to say, uh, to start using the phrase racio-linguistic ideologies or racio-linguistic anything as an adjective or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm much more interested in how um, different concepts can be used to interrogate the ongoing, the legacies of colonial relations that are often obscured, mm. um, whose, me, whose impact or implications and consequences are often obscured, to the extent that racio-linguistic ideologies is a tool for interrogating those colonial histories and figuring out what worlds we've created and what worlds we could create, then I like to use that tool right now and to the extent that other people find that to be a useful tool to do that kind of work outside of the US, then I, I, you know, I think that that's fantastic if it's helpful for them. If it's not helpful, uh, and and it might cease to be help, helpful for me at some point, uh, much less for uh, other folks, um, then we'll need new concepts and we'll need new ways to interrogate yes. these relationships. And so um, this concept is not the point to me. Um, right. the, the histories and uh, and the, the, the histories that they help us to make sense of and to, to reconsider and the possible futures that we can think about and, and, and imagine in relation to them, that's much more what I'm interested in. Yeah, I agree with you in the idea of what are the possibilities and what are the futurities that we can all create together based on these uh, critiques of the, you know, the, our past and histories yeah. of colonial legacy. And the last question is going to be, I am, or oh, this podcast actually is usually listened by scholars, PhD students, professors, you name it. Is there anything that you, or any message that you want to send out to these researchers, educators who are listening to this podcast just to wrap up and finish? Uh, I guess I would say that often the, the kind of debates within the academy and disciplinary kinds of tensions or differences can seem as though, can organize a lot of the ways that we come to identify and the kinds of work that we do. Um, and I often find that uh, becoming so deeply uh, invested in a single framework, uh, whether it's a, a conceptual framework or a methodological framework, um, can prevent us from seeing all kinds of possibilities to collaborate, not just with one another, but the broader communities um, that we're committed to supporting and engaging with. And so, I mean, one of the things that I would want to think about um, 
with colleagues in different fields and community members in different contexts are all of the different ways that all of the different possibilities that exist where you know if you stop paying attention to the individual words that you use to define your methodology or your concepts then suddenly you see how wait in this community they're already conceptualizing intersectionality yeah. they've been conceptualizing intersectionality for for uh, centuries this this population has already been thinking about settler colonialism yeah. or x y and z power relation or hierarchy or dynamic and perhaps they've been theorizing it all along they just haven't been using this word um, and we shouldn't require people to have the same exact sort of uh, concepts or words in order to see possible uh, ways of collaborating, of meaningfully collaborating. So what I'm excited about moving forward in my work and, um, and, and both uh, individually and collaboratively is just sort of trying to figure out what political possibilities exist in this world have always existed and you know what kinds of otherwise realities have people always been uh, imagining and enacting and you know how can we develop new ways of rendering those possibilities legible um, and sort of thinking about uh, what we might learn from and with them so yeah I, I think there are possibilities everywhere I'm sure of it thank you Jonathan for coming to our podcast coming to Toronto coming to our presentation today we really appreciate your work that you do and then we're looking forward to reading more of the work that you're doing thank you so much it's wonderful to be here thank you and this is Yasir Ortega this is Canada's hottest new podcast we go places that others are afraid to go because it's time to flatten the hierarchies. I arrived early, it was cold for a minute, then it was warm, and now it's cooling off again, but I took a really long walk. I just took a four-mile walk with my friends, so been uh, enjoying the weather and enjoying the city so far. <laughs>